from Pacifica Radio in San Francisco, this is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, a special extended edition of the Election Crimes Bulletin. What does it feel like to have your vote stolen by white supremacists after risking your life for your country? Also risking your life photographing the organized extreme right wing. We'll be joined on that uh, front by Zach Roberts, frontline photographer for Greg Palace, and a contributor to Greg Palace's new film, Vigilante. All this and more coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We broadcast every weekday from 5 to 6 over the Pacifica Radio Network. We come to you today out of the San Francisco Bay Area, KPFA, the People's Radio Network Pacifica. And uh, again, we're happy to have you along. Uh, In one moment, we're going to invite uh, a military man onto these airwaves uh, to talk a little bit about his background and what it feels like to have your vote stolen after uh, being willing to die for your country. But let's uh, get a little background on that. Listen to this. Hi, this is uh, Warren Turner. Major retired United States Army, uh, served my country, uh, and then went on to become a future capabilities developer, uh, assisting with the development of new capabilities to take us into 2035 and beyond. A little background on the other side of that, I'm a native Georgian, uh, stationed right now in Washington, well, California helping the uh, Naval uh, Destruction Group 1 out of Port Wanimi uh, with their future requirements. And life is simple. Life is simple. Uh, As an American, uh, we do what we do. And in the midst of that, we try to serve our country. And on top of that, we try to ensure that we exercise our right to vote. And there lies the problem. There lies the problem. Uh, Major Turner, uh, could you talk a little bit uh, more about your background, where you grew up, and uh, uh, some of the experiences you had growing up? I like to say I'm a native Atlantean, probably a true Atlantean. I was born and raised for those that are in Georgia, in Atlanta, uh, what was the old Hunter Street, Martin Luther King uh, Boulevard today known as the Hunter Hills uh, neighborhood. And that was the neighborhood that's right down the street from the Atlanta University, which consists of Miles Clark, Marsh Brown, Spelma, AU Center. Uh, and essentially what that says, that's the neighbor, same neighborhood that back in the 60s that Andrew Young, Martin Luther King, uh, uh, Graf David Abernathy, C.T. Vivian, Williams Home Borders, all of those folk uh, resided. And, and in fact, uh, just, just, just a little, little note, uh, and Hank Aaron lived across the street when he hit the 715 home run. Did so, you say uh, Hank Aaron lived across the street? Yeah. Hank Aaron lived directly across the street. Wow. 
Uh, well, that's a whole other interview. Uh, but I want to talk to you about, um, uh, you discovered recently uh, uh, that you actually, uh, your, your vote is being challenged. Could you give us a little background on what's going on in terms of your vote and how you discovered that you, at this point, are going to have a hard time voting? Like many people born before 1970 uh, and grew up at the point in time that we were not able to vote, uh, listening to my, my parents and their parents talk about the joy of being able to vote, but at the same time witnessing the difficulties and the fear they had in voting. So surely when I reached the age of 18, I couldn't wait to, to vote. I had been drafted to the service uh, and voting was an opportunity to really voice my opinion on what was going on in America. So voting has been important because it was important to those that came before me. And it's been a thing that I look forward to uh, all my life. And that's exercising my right to vote in each election. Uh, in this particular occasion, uh, when trying to vote for the, the primary after moving to California, uh, temporarily, uh, I had a problem receiving my absentee ballot. I had a problem in the early primaries. I had a pro problem in the, the the main election. I had a problem uh, associated with the runoff elections during the during the presidential election, and that's where the problem started. In each occasion, I had to call in and ask to have my ballot sent. Did not recognize that there was a problem associated with it. Uh, until the the runoff election, and that's when I called in again to the register's office, asked where was my ballot. It was about a week late getting to me, only to find out that there was a problem that they had noted that they weren't aware of at the time, and that was that I had been challenged uh, along with a number of others. And at the time, they had no idea how many people had been challenged in Muskogee County. Do you know who challenged you? Is 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 this somebody who uh, is in your circle, who you ever met before, who knows anything about you? Do you know who it is that's uh, uh, trying to block you from voting? At the, at the time that it happened, absolutely not. Now, uh, since then, I found that it is a resident of Muskogee County, uh, and he happens to also be the head of the Republican Party in Muskogee County. So, so yeah. um, and now, so what have you, what's it been like? What kind of struggle is has it been like to uh, be able to vote now? And is it sort of shocking to you that at this time in your life, after all that you've given to your country, all the service you've given, um, that you would lose your vote and it would be taken away by somebody who uh, really would prefer not to see you probably alive. Uh, is it shocking to me? No. Uh, it's shocking to other people. Uh, to me, it hurts. It, it hurts. And, and, and I hurt more so because I let my guard down. I hurt because I was under the assumption that uh, things were better for my individual vote 
and for others. But what we don't see, what we were not able to put together, uh, all these little things that were associated with uh, suppressing the vote, uh, closing up uh, polling places in uh, predominant minority neighborhoods, uh, reducing the number of voting machines in a predominantly uh, black neighborhood. Uh, and then uh, because people of color uh, start to vote more in absentee ballots, uh, you know, there was a way found to, to challenge us. Now, one would, be, one would think, well, nobody knows whether or not you're Democrat or Republican. I, I, I understand that. But at the same time, I would tell you, when you're in a small community like Muskogee County, uh, yes, yeah, everybody knows what side of the railroad track you live on. And it's not hard to determine who you vote for and who you don't. So they can essentially eliminate you all by zip code. They can zip code and voting district easily, yes. So, um, you know, of late, uh, people like Brad Raffensperger uh, Perger has become a, uh, a hero uh, for some people because he stood up to Donald Trump, but other people aren't so sure he's a hero and think he might be one more vote suppressor uh, in disguise. And he's taken actions in the past uh, that have given people reason to question. But I guess I want to, if I could, sir, I, I'd like to uh, talk, get you to talk a little bit about the larger picture. What we've been seeing in the last years, what we saw as a president who is a declared supporter of white supremacy. He has a history of white supremacy. He certainly wasn't afraid to express it. I guess his, uh, most people didn't, weren't shocked when he took on um, Jefferson Sessions as his first attorney general. But anybody <clears throat> who knows anything about voting in the South and politics knows that Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III made a career of stopping black people from voting. And and this is state by state by state. There were folks who really leading the, the voter suppression movement. And here you got a white supremacist who essentially couldn't get enough votes to be elected president uh, and so he attempted to overthrow the government. Well, what do you think about all this, all that you've been through? Well, you know, first of all, let me say you are who you are today when? When when you had that significant event in your life. And I will tell you, for the most part, uh, those of us born before 1970 had a very significant event happen in our life. And, and in the 60s, when we were given the right, the vote, and when we did the transition from separation to integration, uh, that happened overnight for the most part. And there were a lot of people uh, that were not satisfied with that. Uh, and there were a lot of people that were happy for that. For the people of color, we thought that we had equality. Uh, for those that were not of color, they lost, uh, they started to lose power. And as an end result, uh, people of color uh, who assumed that equality had come our way uh, easily began to see that, once again, that was not the case. 
voting was difficult. Uh, doing anything uh, of a equal nature was difficult, but it's, but especially voting. Uh, everybody knew uh, who you were, and they knew what you voted because it was back in paper and pencil. Uh, you had to report in, and your jobs could easily be threatened. Your life could end up being threatened. And it didn't matter what the results were. Uh, people that were in power were not willing to give up power. And I will tell you that none of that's changed. None of that has changed. People that are in power have always had that power, especially at the state and local levels, and they have no real desire to give it up. And because the the younger folk after 19, born after 1970 did not go through that, it's history to them, but for everybody else, the it's a real fight, it's a real battle. We're getting older, and it's about time that others recognize uh, the impact of their vote, the power of their vote, the value of their vote. Yeah, uh, you can say that again. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We're speaking with uh, uh, Major Turner. Major Turner, um, tell us a little bit about uh, your military background. We're, this is a, I, I have to be honest, this is a, a radio network. It's called Pacifica Radio Network, and it was founded uh, really by people, by war resistors, people who were willing to go to jail to resist war on very high moral moral purposes. But you here you are, you've essentially devoted your life uh, to the military, and uh, we don't often have military folk on, but, but tell us about what the military side of your career. What have you been doing? What kinds of uh, uh, work have you been doing? You're, you're sort of on the cutting edge of the U.S. military, aren't you? Uh, yes, a little, little bit about my military background. Uh, I actually came in, it was drafted in 74, actually came into the service in 76. Uh, and that was a special time for America. Uh, it was, you know, a little less than 10 years away from desegregation. So it, it, coming into the military as an officer in an environment uh, right after Vietnam, was uh, not necessarily a nice one. We still had our racial equality. We still had our racial tension. But just the same, you know, my assignments were, you know, essentially Berlin. I served in, uh, from Berlin to, to the, the infantry school. I'm an infantry officer uh, specializing in combat tactics. Uh, and then from there, served and supported my country in California, uh, and Korea for seven years and, and back in my hometown in Atlanta toward the end of my career. Can I ask you, what are you concerned uh, about what's going on in terms of Ukraine? And there seems to be more and more loose talk about uh, nuclear weapons and using nuclear weapons. Uh, we know that Putin has uh, definitely put it front and center. But of course, as you know, uh, Major, the United States is no slacker when it comes to advanced nuclear weaponry and uh, latest generations and all that kind of stuff. So, but but where do you, are you afraid now that we could touch off a, a war that we couldn't stop uh, that would... Uh, 
destroy big chunks of the planet? No, not necessarily so. Uh, there's always been talk of nuclear weapons, but this is not 1960. This is not the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, you're just witnessing the last hurrah. Uh, this war that's being fought today is the last war that we will ever have to be fought like this. Uh, we have pure nations. Everybody's equal. Uh, the impact of what you see in Ukraine is a secondary and tertiary uh, aftermath of our slow support of Ukraine once Zelensky became president. You know, most people don't know when you ask to have a picture with the president and it's denied, uh, that has a significant world impact. Well, we are slow to give aid to countries that are asking for aid. Uh, it has a secondary tertiary impact. And in this case, uh, Ukraine uh, was not was not supported in a manner which could have possibly uh, stopped what we are appearing now. But this is the last time we'll see anything like this. Uh, it's a part of the evolution of change for man, for you know those born after 1970 who's never seen things like this. But for the rest of us, we've been there. Uh, we're coming up on an election year. Uh, the world is changing. And the war in Ukraine is going to be one of those things that's just going to change our tomorrow. We just have to be ready for it. But no nuclear Before war. I, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Before I let you go, um, have you been following the latest uh, politics? Uh, are you thinking, uh, do you believe that uh, Donald Trump uh, should uh, testify before Congress? They're talking about that today. Do you think he should uh, be uh, indicted? Do you think he should face charges uh, for, I, I guess you would be very concerned about uh, the what's been going on at Mar-a-Lago with the top secret documents and the availability of those documents. Um, I'm sort of a journalist on the other side. I'm, I'm not always interested in suppressing the open flow of information, but what are your thoughts on that? I think that if our former president was a regular citizen, uh, a lot of this would take care of itself. But because he is uh, a former president, uh, these are new territories for us, but for our democracy, if we're honest with each other, no person should be above the law. And I, and here's another one of these situations where everything should be treated equal. The assumption on one side was prior to all of this, that anybody that did anything close to this should have been locked up. But if that's the case, if it applied then, if they were found guilty and in error, then they should have been locked up. In this case, if an individual is found guilty and in error and he has broken the law, then he should be prosecuted as such. I know as a military guy that if I came close to doing anything of the same nature, that I would fear for my freedom because I would have the law to answer to. There's a certain way to handle certain things, and everybody that touches those type of documents fully understand it. Uh, and so does uh, our former president. So it's just a matter of, is the law equal to everybody, or is it just for some, uh, just like a lot of other things in our life, like the 13th Amendment? Uh, is it for some people or is it for all? 
What do you think would have happened if the folks who showed up uh, uh, in January to overthrow the government were black people? You think they would have been treated the same way? I mean, it took them months to even start arresting them. Walked in, walked uh, out, destroyed, climbed in through their windows, destroyed the the Capitol, and, uh, you know, there was nobody around. No no disrespect, but if you're asking me... uh, I've always lived under boys will be boys. Ha ha. I've always lived under a separate but uh, unequal uh, system. Uh, I don't think that anyone that saw what happened uh, thinks that the same thing would have been happening if it was any other group of people. Yeah. Uh, And that's scary. Uh, And maybe there will be justice, but it certainly uh, put the system uh, the voting system, the electoral system at risk. Uh, and it certainly pointed out some weaknesses um, that uh, caught many by surprise. Um, Major, I, I really want to thank you for taking the time out. I'm sorry that you are at this late date being treated uh, like you are by this country and so many people are having their votes attacked. But I'm glad uh, that you found Greg Pallast, uh and folks who are fighting uh, for the vote. I, I hope there are fair elections in Georgia because what happens in Georgia, as I'm sure you know, uh, could determine whether this country is going to remain a democracy or go in another direction. So a lot's at stake, isn't it? And I, and I thank you for having me on. I would just say to everyone to recognize the value of your vote. Uh, you can't take it lightly. Every vote does count. It is difficult to suppress the vote, and it's difficult to, to get rid of votes, hide votes, if we are voting in mass. We have to get back up to the 80, 90 percent uh, voting and recognizing that only we can change our tomorrow. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you, sir. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein, and we're going to be taking a short musical break. When we come back, we'll be joined by... Zach D. Roberts, the photographer that works with Greg Pallast. He's put his life on the line trying to take photographs of these uh, right supremacist, white supremacists. Ah, what can you call them? Ah. We'll be right back.
And we are back. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. And we are happy to welcome back to these airwaves Zach Roberts. He is a frontline photographer. He works with Greg Palast. He worked on the new film Vigilante, George's Vote Suppression Hitman. Uh, and uh, he was almost uh, hit by one of those... Men, and I guess there are any women who are doing the violence sack? Um, it, I guess it depends on uh, which rally we're talking about. Um, I mean, there were women at the T Torch rally, um, you know, in Charlottesville. They were told to stand back, though, because the men had to had to go forward. But there certainly has been women on the front lines on January 6th. I mean, there's there's women that were on the front lines uh, trying to uh, bust into the Capitol. Um, and, you know, go after uh, uh, members of Congress. I mean, so it's it's a uh, um, not only a, it's not necessarily a bipartisan affair, but it is a uh, um, it, it is not a gendered affair. Uh, let's just say. All right. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, who these folks are. We, we call them white supremacists. Uh, uh, they could be called terrorists. Uh, they're now, they've now demonstrated they are willing uh, to take a human life uh, for uh, the cause of Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, tell us, you know, you've been photographing these folks since Charlottesville? Um, I mean, uh, since actually before, uh, since long before that, because uh, although I didn't necessarily know what um, what I was covering, I was, you know, for years I was covering uh, CPAC and the NRA and like just watching this, this vitriol before Trump, you know, watching this vitriol kind of slowly expand, especially, you know, like when we had a black president and, you know, that the, there's a reason why the Oath Keepers. Um, even though they won't admit it, the Oath Keepers started their organization in 2009. Um, I talked to an Oath Keeper in Ferguson. Um, I was just looking over those photos again because people were talking about online, what's the weirdest place you've ever interviewed someone? And I said a dentist's office in uh, Ferguson, Missouri, during the, um, uh, during the protest that happened there, um, I interviewed an Oath Keeper on uh, the 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 black leather couch uh, that was there. It was one of the most surreal moments because there was men with guns and all the other, all the little offices and everything like that, but they were there um, protecting, you know, supposedly protecting the buildings. Even they even told me that after the interview told me that if I was being chased, just run straight down the middle of the road and I'll take care of what's behind you. And I'm like, that, that turned me, I made sure I did not run anywhere because I knew that there was a, there was a probably a scope, you know, um, uh, spotted on me to, you know, quote unquote, you know, take care of me. Hopefully, (laughs) (laughs) thankfully it was never an incident. I I did not have any problems at uh, Ferguson other than uh, the police there who, you know, (laughs) I got a couple lumps from and and some uh, pepper spray from. Um, But, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's been this weird slide and like, and then, you know, uh, Unite the Right rally happened and there had been a bunch of, you know, rallies beforehand uh, that were in, you know, farther away states and uh, decided to uh, cover that. And um, it's it's kind of uh, unfortunately all gone downhill from there. But I mean, like I covered the, the entire Trump uh, Trump campaign and, you know, the number of uh, the number of, uh, you know, different uh, militia esque groups uh, that were surrounding that, 
you know, all the signs and symbols were there. I looked, you know, go back and look through all my photos and I'm like, Oh my God, that's a proud boy there. I didn't recognize that. That's a, you know, that's a, um, that's a, that's an oath keeper or that's some other, uh, that's a member of some other, you know, violent gang, uh, you know, hate gang. That's, uh, that's suddenly, uh, suddenly came up when, uh, when Trump, uh, became president. So. One of the shootouts you had, if you will, with the extreme right uh, took place in Charlottesville. I want to talk to you about that. We haven't talked about that in a bit, but that really was the clue about where Trump was willing to go. He 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 made it very clear. I, I mean, I thought he sort of made it clear when he hired, uh, when he brought on uh, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions because he is clearly an extreme right winger who spent a lifetime stopping black people from vote, but apparently from voting, but apparently that wasn't even close in terms of what Trump had in mind. Uh, I I think the dude, uh, Beauregard, still believed something about uh, about the system, at least for white people. Um, yeah. But talk about Charlottesville and, and how that unfolded for you uh, and how you ended up in a police garage. I believe, if I remember correctly, it was also full of sort of police cars where you were facing off with the extreme right. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was after uh, the park had been cleared and officially the protest had been, you know, the the police made the declaration that this protest is over and pushed all of the uh, uh, the very violent um, white supremacists and Nazis and white nationalists and assorted folk um, into into the anti-fascist protesters, literally creating creating what would end up being, you know, so much of the violence that happened that day. And they ended up just free marching down the street. You know, police did nothing with their batons, with uh, the uh, the protests. I mean, the, I'm sorry, the the you know the the unite the right marchers, the white supremacists were marching with you know, literally they had shields that had screws that pointed out them so that when they slammed into people, you got you know punctured with a screw. Like I have photos of this. They that all of this was documented beforehand by anti-fascist researchers, and the police just completely ignored it. But these guys are marching down the street. I'm following along, taking photos and video, and uh, I see a, a scuffle happening up above, uh, up uh, up the street, and I run towards it and like running into the parking garage, um, taking photos. Not quite sure really because it happened so quickly what I what I was capturing, other than I could see that a young African American uh, man was uh, getting attacked. And, uh, you know, thankfully, a bunch of his friends came along uh, and another journalist who was much closer uh, named Chuck Modi, who's a fantastic journalist who does a lot of on street stuff, actually booted one of the one of the uh, uh, one of the Nazis that was uh, attacking um, DeAndre Harris. Um, and uh, the, the scuffle, uh, the, 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 the brutal near murder uh, was, was stopped. Um, but, you know, it was I found out afterwards as I literally walked out of the uh, out of the parking parking garage that it was literally the parking garage for the for the Charlottesville Police Department um, and that was where that that was where all of the unite the vast majority of the uh, unite the right participants decided to park their cars um, it seems to be you know in that, that garage yeah they decided to do that I have with the police where the police under the police station was it or 
It's it was it's literally like there's a small side street between the two of them, but literally in the in like the bottom areas, I believe, where uh, the police park their either their personal vehicles, but also some of the uh, um, some of the police uh, police uh, vehicles. And it's like literally it's it's about it's about 100 feet away from the where where DeAndre Harris was attacked is about 100 150 feet away from the front door of the Charlottesville Police Department. And when I literally I, I walked out of there, I almost ran into a state trooper and I tried to show him the photos. He had no interest. He just shrugged his shoulders and walked on. And then I walked over towards the police department and there was, um, you can look back through and go on gregpalace.com. I have all these photos up there and there's literally just a bunch of, uh, league of the South, uh, members, which is, uh, a couple of the people that attacked DeAndre Harris, um, were league of the South members. It's a, Supposedly a neo-Confederate group is, I think, what they call themselves. Um, but they're a hate group. I mean, they're you know pro-Confederate. I mean, I think that's pretty clear that they're <laughs> they're a hate group. Um, but they were one of the one one of the groups that got basically really uh, with the the recent the lo- lawsuit. I think it was last year um, that I went think, after that. Zach, that that this is I I bring this up because it's it's really uh-huh. revelatory. Uh, now uh, all of a sudden there are these investigations about. Uh, the Secret Service and the FBI. Everybody yeah. knows that uh, the FBI is 4% black. That's 96% yeah. other. Uh, uh, and everybody knows that, that th- there is this long time connection between the extreme right and various police organizations. So here you are in Charlottesville. Uh, the head of the Proud Boys is a, long, is a favorite informant of the, uh, of the FBI. He's a favored and was a favored informant of it, of him. I mean, you know, um, Enrique Tarrio is a Cuban, Cuban American himself. But um, I mean, they have extreme, they have extremely close ties to that. Uh, myself and uh, another videographer, Ford Fisher, have documented extensively um, the close ties between um, the Proud Boys and the D.C. Metro Police Forces. Um, we literally Ford has a video of them going along and fist bumping them as they as they show them around. I ha- I, I witnessed them going into their favorite bar uh, in in DC. Um, there it's this terrible dive bar, um, and uh, literally one of the police officers yells out, "I like beer." This is after the Brian Kavanaugh hearings, um, and they march in. And this is after they went on a violent um, beatdown of uh, some. Uh, uh, some protesters by the White House who uh, tried to burn an American flag, and <laughs> they witnessed all this and ended up arresting the protest, arresting the. Um, I'm not quite sure if lefty is the right description for them, but like a le- like left more lefty protesters, um, they beat them up and then they ended up arresting them, uh, not the Proud Boys who committed the violence. Um, and so uh, when January 6 happened, and they weren't prepared because they didn't vote. I don't know whether they didn't believe something was going to happen or whether the intel or what, you know, as we found, you know, through this hearing about how literally the police forces just, there was knowledge of this happening. Um, They talked about their plans online um, and they coordinated online and out in the open for a lot of it. And also some of the, the more hidden stuff uh, was well-documented by uh, journalists and uh, anti-fascist researchers. And a lot of that 
public, well, that information was public. A lot of it was uh, either sent um, to police or just made available in general. Um, and they did no preparation. And, um, you know, we don't know whether that's because they were prevented from doing preparation. Um, but based on everything I've ever witnessed, um, it, it is because they are friendly with these groups. I mean, police forces, whether it be the Capitol Police or whether it be the uh, Metro Police or whether it be the Virginia State Police, they, <laughs> if, there, if there's a protest where there's anti-fascist protesters and then there's violent Oath Keeper or Proud Boy protesters, that where you can always go, you can always look at the protest, look at the photos and go, who do they have their back to? Those are the people that they trust and ha- and literally metaphorically think have their back. And every single protest I've ever been to, um, and uh, I talked to uh, Andy Campbell uh, a couple weeks ago for the Progressive Magazine about his book about the Proud Boys, and he described the same thing, where it's just like all these Portland protests, they have the police have their back and are protecting the Proud Boys from anti-fascist protesters. And, you know, as, as wild as Portland protests get, um, I've covered a bunch, I've covered some of those. Um, the, the Proud Boys are the ones that have literally shot people, shot at people um, at these protests with handguns. <laughs> and they're the ones that bring weapons into the, into these protests, like firearms into these protests. And, um, and so like the fact that we have this problem that we're just not dealing with and, it, it, this is one of the biggest things that terrifies me about the next, you know, the next four years, the next, especially the next two years, as we lead up into um, basically once this, once the midterms election are over, we're, it's immediately going to be okay. Is Trump going to run? If Trump doesn't run, and then that becomes the Proud Boys are reforming. I mean, Gavin McGinnis is having a uh, a comedy show in Pennsylvania, and the the uh, the college there will not cancel it. So, I mean, like, these guys are still – Gavin McInnes is the uh, founder of the Proud Boys. Um, and uh, – but they won't stop it. And even though he's a – literally, the Proud Boys are a terrorist organization in, in Canada and <laughs> where he is from. And uh, for some reason, I, guess, I mean, I guess it's a free speech issue in America. <laughs> you can – you know, you can be a terrorist as long as you're a white terrorist um, and, and you keep all your free well, speech and, right. And just to come back to that garage basement – Remind people what happened. It turned into a major court case. It was revelatory in itself. And your work, Zach, your courageous work uh, made it possible to hold some of these dudes accountable. Yeah, I mean, uh, thankfully, my photos got out there. Um, you know, there's a, a wild group of people. I was just having this discussion with someone about the weird group of people that got these photos out there. Um, and it was Mark Cuban was one of the few people that got out there first. It's just like uh, these photos. And immediately uh, there was uh, anti-fascist researchers who went just completely like CSI on, on all these photos that I, that I po- have posted and published and figured out who almost every single one of these people are. And then that photo, those, that information got public. Um, and the police were basically forced to do something about it. Not before DeAndre Harris was actually arrested. <laughs> he was actually arrested before he, most. He was other beaten people. brutally, right? Yeah, he was nearly killed. Um, I mean, he, he, was nearly he killed. had. He was nearly killed. He was also because he was he was bleeding so um, excessively from his head um, that, uh, like, I've been told that like he was he was like you know twenty minutes away from like 
you know, being gone, being out and being like, because basically it, it was, I, I stuck around until he got help, uh, until he got some help. And the first people that <laughs> I've been harping on this, but it's like the first people who helped him were anti-fascist uh, medics. Um, the actual medical <laughs> team, they, and po- or police, police literally just stood by and basically per- kind of protected him um, in a, in a, in the, in the same stairwell that he was, was uh, uh, of the parking garage that he was beaten in. He was hiding out in there and they did nothing whatsoever to help him. I mean, literally, I how, how did these folks feel about him. you taking pictures of the beating? Were they concerned that it might turn into what it really did turn into? How'd uh, you well, walk out of the, there? I mean, uh, I mean, thankfully, um, you know, thankfully a bunch of his, honestly, I mean, thankfully a bunch of his friends came along, um, uh, because he was with a group of people, um, and, uh, kind of, they moved along and the moment that they saw press kind of swarming, I think they read, you know, these guys, some of them at least are smart enough that they, once they committed literal, literal assault in front of a police station that they go, okay. And then there's about 30 cameras now taking photos of everybody around. They should move along. And so like they, they kind of just ran along. Police did absolutely nothing um, because they just didn't want to deal with anything that day. I don't think. Um, and, and so from there, like I said, like I said, it was just, you know, thankfully the, you know, my, my photos and uh, Chuck Modi's video and, uh, and some other people's photos like got out there and we just were able to figure out who all the people were um, doing some, you know, wild, you know, photo matching and figuring out who was there and consulting databases that other like groups like Unicorn Riot um, have have kept about who these who these people are in these groups. And uh, we're able to figure out four of the people um, were uh, were thrown in jail. Um, it actually makes me think uh, at least one or two of them, I think might be getting out of jail soon because it's, it's been five, it's been almost five years. And I think the lowest sentence was, uh, was four years, uh, four or five years. So, yeah, well, the good work on, uh, shooting it out with them. You're listening to flashpoints on Pacifica radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We're speaking with the wonderful uh, and courageous photographer, Zach D. Roberts. He works with Greg Palast. He works with Palast and has uh, been working with him on the new film. Uh, You may have heard of it, Vigilante, (laughs) George's voter suppression hitman. You should see this film, Zach. Um, And people listening, uh, are you going to be in town for the showing here? I am sadly not going to be in town for the uh, okay. We're going to um, miss you, but I, I, I want to tell people showing. that <laughs> yeah, you, you can. It, it's coming up. I want to tell people go to if you're interested in um, in seeing Greg Palast and seeing the film. I'm I'm having a coming out party. It's the first time I've been out of the house in two and a half years. <laughs> I'm one of those like very endangered, immune, yeah. whatever they well, call them. The, the so I, I the meet all the criteria the to die instantly. <laughs> yeah, I, I I had a lot of those. I had a lot of those as well. And uh, um, like, I mean, man, covering those early um, anti quote unquote anti mandate protests, like I did, and covering it with a mask. That was honestly like the last protest, one of the one of the last protests I covered in Pennsylvania that was kind of still an anti-mandate protest, but also kind of delving into the big lie protests. I actually got attacked because I was wearing a mask. And um, oh, and that oh, was basically that's a from good that. Reason, yeah. 
Yeah, well, I mean, no, I was literally the only person wearing a mask at this protest. It was all it was outside and everything like that, but it was just like and I also was the only member of the media covering covering it with a camera. So I had a little bit of like, you know, like a red flag, like a flag above me that basically said, you know, um, I am a I am a target. Um, and so that actually was the last time um, the riskiest part of like my my job now, I always say, is the fact that like I, it's not safe to actually wear. A, I always tell people wear a mask, but like it's not safe for a person like me to actually like when I go and cover these things to wear a mask. And uh, it took actually a Brian, I was uh, covering a Brian Kemp rally is when I finally caught COVID after years. Well, listen, I want to get to, uh, I I really want to get to uh, some of the early work you guys did in Georgia, but here's what I want to do. And I'd like to open up the phones. Will you stay with us for a few phone calls, Zach? Absolutely. Okay, so the number here, if people want to get in and speak to this courageous photographer, the number is 1-800-958-9008. That's 1-800-958-9008. 1-800-958-9008. Were you watching, listening? On Pacifica Radio, were you listening to the final? Well, it wasn't the final hearing, but it was profound. Uh, they want to bring Trump in uh, and uh, let him take the fifth floor hundred thousand times because he ain't talking about anything if he ever shows up. So, but that's a whole other story. We're going to take a musical break. When we come back, you can join us with Zach Roberts. Also, by the way, uh, you can go to the if you go to kpfa.org and scroll down, uh, you can find out all the information you need to know about our upcoming event next week with Greg Palast and the one of the premier showings of Vigilante, Georgia's vote suppression hitman. We'll be back in a second.
And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We are speaking with Zach Roberts. He's a photographer with Greg Palast. Uh, his new film is Vigilante, Georgia's Vote Suppression Hitman. Uh, and uh, it's going to be showing in the Bay Area at the Grand Lake Theater in Oakland. Greg's going to be there. I'm going to be there with him. And you can check it out. You can uh, just go to uh, the kpfa.org website, scroll down, and check it out. It's happening next Wednesday, October 19th. Next Wednesday, October 19th. Check it out. It's going to be an amazing evening. We're going to uh, sh- look at the film. We're going to have a nice discussion. And you can meet Mr. Greg Palace, and he is sort of amazing. Uh, dude, uh, but uh, we're going to take some calls if we get some. It's 800-958-9008. Zach, uh, you know, it's all happening. And the film takes place, by the way, I should say, essentially in Georgia, where you all, you along with Greg, revealed, documented the fact that this was... This has become had become a new yep. Republican Party that the extreme right wing yep. had taken over. Folks like uh, Ali Alexander started talking about having to burn it down. You want to talk a little bit about those early moments? You did some wonderful photography as well. So the the you know we we started with the I, I would say this has been a long slow build. When I, when I say that like I have been kind of slowly sliding into covering. Uh, you know, the extremism that, you know, led to January 6th, probably since I started working for Greg back in 2006, when I first came across a guy named Chris Kobach um, in Kansas, who was leading the, organizing this massive voter suppression program called Crosscheck. He works, he works side by side with a whole bunch of different white nationalist anti-immigrant groups. And so that led when I started covering things like CPAC and that sort of thing, I, I, I found this organization called True the Vote, and what they were doing was leading this conspiracy, <laughs> this like long-held conspiracy within the Republican Party that goes from top to bottom. George Bush was talking about this. Like this has been seeded for a long time, and it kind of just came to bloom with Donald Trump. And the fact that like they believe that they believe that. Tens of thousands of uh, back. It was back in like 2004. It was tens of thousands of Mexicans are crossing the border to vote for the Democratic Party. I mean, like that literally like there was this planned Democratic Party um, organization that was going to Mexico, busing people in, getting them to vote in Texas or in, in, in other states, like going to Chicago and things like that and having them vote illegally and then sometimes vote twice. And so, like, the fact that the fact that, like, a lot of the mainstream media is kind of just coming of like, oh, my goodness, the Republican Party is when it comes to especially when it comes to voting is just filled to the brim with these voter conspiracists that these like these delusional people who think that, like, basically half the half of the people that vote on Election Day are illegally voting or voting twice or voting in the wrong district or doing all of these things. And so groups like True the Vote have just basically gotten boatloads of money from all these different shady organizations. And now what they're doing is they're funding these training operations to train up just 
random, you know, like basically so many real estate, uh, so many women in real estate uh, that I've come across are doing are these vigilantes that are now going through the records of, uh, you know, NCO, um, national change of address forms and finding anybody who like changed their address is very clearly voting in the wrong spot. I mean, that's how that's one of the ways that uh, Major Turner, who used to spoke to, got wrapped up into it. And but they're training all these people who are now partially thanks to Donald Trump, part just embedded within the Republican Party, just like the person that went after uh, Major Turner, the uh, guy who you will see at the start of the pretty early in the film. Or if you go to gregpalace.com, you'll see uh, a little video clip of him. He likes to dress up as Doc Holliday and tell stories. Um, carrying a six, uh, carrying a uh, six gun in his in his uh, in his holster, and he's the guy. He's the Muskogee Party uh, Republican Party chair, who also, in his spare time, um, likes to go through um, and submit thousands of people's names into uh, the into the uh, uh, um, election boards to question whether they have the right to vote. And um, you know, Major Turner was one of the uh, really lucky ones who was able to catch this, and he also, you know, had the wherewithal and the means and everything right. like that to really defend his vote, like you know, almost like I've never seen anybody else do. And right. and and so, but there's thousands of these people, not just in Georgia, but in Pennsylvania. I mean, even in California, they're organizing these groups. So, I mean, like this is these this vote is a story we talk Listen, about. Listen, let me interrupt yeah. here. I'm sorry, I'm because we got sure. a call. Uh, let's see if we can get a couple of calls in. Uh, Lucian, uh, join us uh, on Flashpoints. You're on with Zach Roberts, photographer. Yeah, hi, Zach. I uh, wanted to know somebody who wants to give back and contribute and participate and do what you do as as kind of a semi-professional photographer, videographer. How can you get into this? And, of course, what do you need? Of course, besides, like, a couple of backup cameras and some crutches in case things go wrong. Uh, I mean, bulletproof vest, a shield. Go on. (laughs) Well, first, I would be, you know, always be very careful on what you're uh, when you're showing up to these because you you have to like. I mean, one thing that I I try to help train people or whatever, noticing the signs and symbols. Like, there's patches, there's different things. They're like, oh, I should be worried more worried about this person than this person. And so, um, I don't always recommend to just jump into it, but like really kind of dive into, spend some time on the Southern Poverty Law Center site, like learning those sites and symbols. The ADL has a has a pretty good database on that too. So when you go to the groups, but like if you're in California. Um, I mean, you know, there's a lot of, um, especially like in San Diego, uh, there's a lot of uh, Proud Boy groups that are showing up at like drag time story hours and things like that and just going after like bakeries in Chicago and things like that. So if you can document, you know, what's happening there, um, you know, get hooked, get hooked up with uh, there's a lot of really great um, left, left, left coast right watch is a is a um, uh, I, I think they're California based. Um, really great uh, website that uh, documents um, extremism kind of mo- most, I think mostly in California, but they do a lot of other stuff too. Um, but they're Give really that again. Group. What's so that website? Left coast, right watch. LCRW. Left coast, right um, watch. Yeah. That's a ton yeah, of I know, I, I know the guys that run the site. I know the peop- uh, people who run the site and they're, uh, they're really solid and really great. Um, their reporting is, at least, I would. I, it would be an insult if I said at least as good as the New York Times. They're they're like 
they're dead on with their reporting almost, uh, not almost always. And um, I couldn't recommend checking them out enough. Uh, but, you know, I mean, there's always there's always a need to, like, cover these things to get people's, you know, get people cover it in a way that because the news, the news media in general, like the TV news will show up and, you know, talk to a couple of proud boys and be like, oh, well, we just, you know, don't think that children should be in a bar. And that's the, that's the angle, the story that they cover, not the fact that they're leading this anti-trans um, <laughs> violent hate group that is now doing bomb threats to children's hospitals <laughs> and things like that, like that, which, you know, lives of TikTok is like leading these these uh, uh, other types of vigilantes. And like this is really kind of how all of the Republican Party, all the conservative movements in general in this country now, they're all turning into like little vigilantes. Some of them go after voting. Some of them go after, you know, supposedly go after child trafficking. And some of them, you know, want to protect the little kids from, you know, transgender surgery that supposedly, you know, four-year-olds are getting, according to these these people. Listen, Zach, we are out of time. Uh, I want to tell people, though, uh, what a wonderful and courageous photographer you are working with, Greg Palast. Uh, And as I said, you can check out uh, the new film coming out of Greg Palast. GregPalast.com is all about what we're talking about. Vigilantes, you can check it out. You can go to kpfa.org and just scroll down Uh, to the events part of the front page and check it out. We'd love to have you. It's going to be a a cool evening. We'll have more to say over the next uh, couple of days. It's happening next Wednesday night. So check it out. Zach, you are wonderful and courageous. Thank you for uh, joining us today on Flashpoints. Thank you so much. And please go see Vigilante in Oakland. (laughs) Be safe. Uh, That's it for us. 